0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company for The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff. Coming up, PERSA have been surveying locust populations. I'll have more on their findings.
3: And what we found were patches of locusts, but not uh, not of a of a large scale. So certainly at the lower end of the of, of an outbreak scale, which is good news for producers.
2: Certainly is. Uh, It's the last thing people need to deal with when there's a lot of other things going on at the moment. Speaking of uh, things going on, new information out about river flows is out. I'll catch up with a Murray River irrigator to see how preparations are going for these. uh, Once again, we're amped up, or at least to extend it. There's a second flow with an even higher peak expected now. So I'll touch base with some irrigators to see how they're feeling about that. But first up today, canola growers are. Battling with the harsh weather conditions in the east and, uh, and down the southeast as well there 's concerns around weather in particular as well. Now the Australian Oil Seeds Federation, as a result, has created new seasonal standards to address the issues with the uh, trading of har- harvests affected. By these seasonal impacts, the AOF consulted with domestic crushers, exporters and bulk handlers to ascertain the extent of the quality impacts and to look at options for dealing with these weather-impacted canola seeds. Now, CEO Nick Goddard says the broad consensus was to establish an additional 2022-23 seasonal standard for canola that falls outside the usual accepted quality.
4: Canola certainly... Um taken a fair share of the, of the weather over the last few months and particularly over the last few weeks. What we're seeing with the early deliveries is certainly instances of weather damage canola and applying the existing standard, the current standard to that canola would be rejected. So what we've done over the last few days is consult with industry and identify that we really can't Um, turn growers away from the the receivable stands on the basis of the quality of the canola. So we've opened up a new seasonal standard only for this season to accommodate the weather damaged and stressed canola.
5: In Australia, we only deal with what we consider sort of an A grade uh, canola or in industry terms CS01 or CS01A. This is now going to be the seasonal standard cSO1s for season, so will will this affect pricing at all?
4: look, I think what um, it, it's very early days we've just seen the first deliveries coming in from northern New South Wales and down to central New South Wales, so we really haven't had time to evaluate what the quality implications might mean for crushing so it's very difficult to say at this stage what uh, if any the pricing implication there could be with this until we've fully evaluated the seed. One option that growers may want to consider is just storing storing the grain in a storage system until the prices have been determined. I'm sure that'll happen over the next week or so once more grain comes in, it can be better analysed and determined how the, the implications for processing.
5: So this seasonal standard isn't so much to guarantee a price for farmers, it's more just to keep the supply chain moving?
4: Yeah, well, it's really giving... an growers an option to deliver because otherwise according to the um, conventional standard it would be rejected because of the amount of weather damaged grain within there so yes it's giving an option for growers to be able to deliver and I'm sure that it will be priced accordingly depending on its ability you know the implications for processing.
5: So are these standards only for people ascribed to Australian Oil Seeds Federation or is this an industry-wide decision?
4: Oh no these are industry-wide trading standards that are held in a developed by the Australian Oil Seeds Federation in conjunction with the industry and then um, applied broadly across the industry.
5: Have you seen any issues with mould coming in so far with what has come out of New South Wales?
4: So what we're seeing, when I say weather damaged, it, it's ranging from, from greyish coloured seed to chalky white coloured seed and the extent to which that might may or may not be mould is really yet to be determined. So rather than just giving it a blanket name of mould are we're actually just calling it you know weather damaged for seasonal, seasonal conditions until we get a better understanding of exactly what the implication is of, of the grain and um, you know if, if there is mould
5: indeed on it or not. Obviously this does open up that option for farmers that may not have thought about trading their harvest but there's still going to be a pretty significant reduction in yields across the eastern states surely even with this consideration.
4: Yeah, look, I think irrespective of the quality of the sea, one thing that's fair is where it is good, it's very good. So we're seeing, you know, crops that, that are on the higher ground and haven't been impacted by the wind, the hail, the rain <laughs> or the floods uh, look very good. But those that have been impacted, certainly uh, that's going to impact the overall yield. From a level that was looking extremely good, so we're probably going to come back to about an average yield in New South Wales and Victoria from what might have been well above average Um, when we're looking at the crop sort of in August, September.
2: Hopefully your crops are looking good, but uh, it sounds like there is an option there if you are affected by the season. That was Australian Oil Seeds Federation CEO Nick Goddard speaking with Jane McNaughton there. uh, Another uh, issue that uh, croppers could face, indeed anyone in agriculture could face, is uh, locusts. The Department of Primary Industries and Regions, or PERSA, have been closely surveying the locust populations. And although some patches have been discovered, incident controller for the PERSA locust response Michael McManus says it's at the lower end of the outbreak scale. However, he still encourages landowners to report any significant sightings.
3: When I spoke to you a while ago, Persia was conducting surveillance across a couple of operational areas in the in the upper North Flinders region and the upper air peninsula, and that was to check for the populations of locusts in those regions and to decide whether Persia needed to do population control itself so we 've been doing that for a couple of months, and what we found were Patches of locusts, but not uh, not of a of a large scale. So certainly at the lower end of the, of an outbreak scale, which is good news for producers. But what that means is we will still see some patches of localized areas or, or of locust uh, hatching and banding up. Uh, I guess in the upper north cropping areas, upper air Peninsula and, and um, western air Peninsula, and uh, there might be some seen in the in the Mallee as well. So what we're in, encouraging producers to do is if they see young juvenile locusts banding up is to conduct control on their on their own properties to make sure that they don't pose a threat to any um, crops that are getting ready for harvest with green tips still present.
6: And you just mentioned that there were some patches already identified. Where are those specifically, those localised patches at the moment?
3: Yeah, so those localised patches were some found north of Hawker, uh, some found northeast of Yunta, some uh, emerging from around the Gawla Ranges area on Upper Air Peninsula, and we've had a, um, some reports. Around Wilmington uh, as well. So, so those are the areas that have that have both either we've had reports come in from producers or we've picked them up in in our PERSA surveillance.
6: And what has the reporting been like? Have you found that a lot of landholders are coming forward with reports, or or even just questions um, about some of the things they they may be concerned about?
3: Uh, certainly, we've had, a, a, I guess, a small number of landowners reporting seeing locusts in the cropping areas. We've spoken to a lot of the of the pastoral landowners, and they've been really helpful and provided a lot of information uh, to us. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, only a small number of, of cropping landowners have actually started to see any locusts, which is good news. We don't want, we don't, of course, want a lot of a lot of cropping people seeing locusts. But we certainly have those had had those small numbers of reports. Um, they have been, uh, I guess a little concerned because they've got uh, crops approaching harvest but we've been able to provide them uh, advice on how to, how to go about conducting control of those locusts whilst they're still um, juveniles and, and banding.
6: And you mentioned that it's likely for those locusts to head mid-north or upper mid-north and also the Western Air Peninsula. How likely is that migration exactly?
3: Um, well what we do know is once the, the locusts um, develop uh, through their nymph stages into adults that they then form swarms and can fly sort of large distances. The good part about that story is that there's not huge population base there. So, so there are only patches there, and those patches will fly off as swarms. So we're not expect- so whilst they certainly will move, we're not expecting large areas to, 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 to um, have locust populations arrive as swarms. So there, there might be isolated patches where that occurs, but, but that won't be widespread.
6: Obviously, it's been very wet. Has this affected or impacted the potential plague?
3: Not especially. What what the wet weather has done is just slowed the development of the locusts, so they haven't gone through from their juvenile stage to the adult stage as quickly as they normally would. Uh, But but the wet weather certainly uh, doesn't stop them from emerging; it just delays their growth. Uh, And it probably also means there is still green feed uh, around in a lot of the areas where locusts are, uh, which means that they can can develop. Um, uh, certainly they're not not having a shortage of food, um, so they can develop through to the adult stage. So so not a major impact other than slowing them down. I guess we started this program because we knew there were locusts there in, in, um, back in autumn from the surveys and reports that we'd done. And it wasn't clear... How big the scale of those locusts was going to be, so what Perser did was make sure we were fully prepared in case uh, that the numbers were at the high end and that we could take control and that we could undertake control, sorry, and that we could advise producers of, of what to expect so for Perser, it was really a case of of preparation and surveillance Um, and the the fortunate news is that they've come out at the lower end of the scale so we're not expecting uh, you know the widespread damage that could occur but people do still need to be vigilant as there will be some populations around.
6: So compared to other years there's no need for extra concern the risk is tracking as it usually would at this point in time?
3: Yes, that's right. So back in 2010-11 uh, we had a, a really large population and we had to do, uh, Persa needed to do large scale control to get those populations down to stop them from spreading to cropping areas. Uh, on this occasion we haven't found them at those levels and those densities, um, so we don't have uh, that risk. But we still do have isolated pockets and, and we just encourage producers to undertake, I guess, their normal pest management practices of monitoring their crops. And if they do see locusts and they're concerned about the uh, locusts causing damage to those crops, they can uh, use registered or permitted uh, chemicals to, to undertake control.
2: Incident controller for the PERSA Locust Response, Michael McManus, speaking there with Dimitri at Panagiotaris. And as was mentioned there, if you do see any uh, locusts, you can report them on the exotic plant pest hotline on 1800 084 881 or use the Locust Locator app as well. You can also go to the PERSA website for more details as well. Hopefully they do stay away because there's enough things that people are facing at the moment. It's 17 minutes past 12. This week on Landline, farming off the grid.
7: We use roughly about 17,000 kilowatts uh, of energy a year, uh, which equates to $4,500, $5,000 electricity cost that we save every year.
8: And celebrating the work of country creators. I think it's about making something and sharing it with other people and it brings people together. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: I'll have more on what the weather holds next, but in the meantime, it seems the demand for shedding sheep is on the increase. At the recent annual Sheepmaster Ram auction, there were 95 rams sold, pretty much doubling last year's numbers. Marina producer John Dalla runs near Waruka and paid top dollar for the $110,000 ram. It was one of six rams he took home from the auction. This was his first time purchasing a shedding breed and he is hoping that the new rams will work. With his current operation and reduce the workload.
9: So we're looking to diversify the business into, you know, into a shedding breed. Just a few market trends. You know, there has been a big shift into sort of shedding type sheep throughout Australia for various reasons. One being shearers' uh, availability, just a bit of a shortage, and also the amount of wet weather. Um, people aren't able to get their sheep shorn. Plus, also a bit of labour um, to get people to to do work with stock you know, like landmarking marking and various other things as well and you know just workload at home uh, we find similar issues as far as labour wise so we're you know hoping to be able to run similar numbers of sheep if not more uh, with less labour units.
10: So are you looking to move more into the meat space now?
9: Yeah so we've gone ahead and registered a sheep master stud in South Australia you know we've purchased a big number of ewes and we, we actually purchased six rams out of the sale the other day and going to do an embryo transfer program and some AI as well. So we we currently run white Suffolk and pole dorset studs um, with the intention, uh, if we can you know, get the sheep masters to work well, we'll move out of the white Suffolks and dorsets. We just feel that if we're going to have a sheep producing meat, uh, they might as well not have any wool on them to make them easier to run and, and manage. Will you continue with your wool operation? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So we have no intention of moving out of out of the merino operation yeah we're, we're going to continue running the stud and commercial side of things but it sort of works in well having multiple blocks that we can, we can sort of run things fairly separately and um i think they'll sort of complement each other and to the point i think my merinos will benefit from me running a percentage of the flock of shedders because i'll have more time to spend with them and you know and continue to run them properly because we'll be sort of about a third of our, our use will be fairly low maintenance within about two years
10: it is a big investment. Were you expecting to pay that much for the ram?
9: It's no surprise he made that much and we're fully expecting to pay that much. Yeah, it is a big amount of money, but we went into the sale fully expecting to pay at least that much, if not more. So it was um, yeah, quite a good day, really.
10: And what are you hoping to get out of your recent purchase?
9: We purchased him as a semen sire as well. So there's semen available for sale, um, both domestically and internationally. And you know, we've already had quite a lot of interest in that. But Uh, we also thought we needed to purchase the best ram we could find if we were going to start it successfully we we like doing things well Um, we've had a lot of success for a long time with our merinos and and always believe in quality so you know when we, we saw this ram it was just a matter of we had to have him because he was probably the best shedding ram i think i've ever seen
10: do you think that these sort of purchases could be the future
9: oh absolutely yeah i think sort of the the, the top end quality of, of shedding rams into the future for the likes of myself and there's a few other people really starting to heavily go into it you know, it might become the norm uh, to sort of try and secure those top end genetics.
10: And has this sort of receptiveness become more apparent in what sort of time frame?
9: Really the last sort of one to two years has made a massive shift into it you know people who you know, I've discussed just all of this uh, move into them, about a couple of years ago, I, I reckon they would have told me that I was silly and, you know, steer clear Are all starting to, you know, ask a lot more questions and about, you know, considering whether they might even have a move themselves partially or fully into shedding sheep away from various other breeds or even even to a point considering moving away from cropping a little bit just with a few weed resistance and, and input costs, just a sort of low input, low maintenance Income streams, you know, fairly fairly popular idea at the moment.
10: John Dalla from Orikawi at Waruka in South Australia. Neil Garnett is the founding breeder of Sheepmaster. He says he has seen a change in attitude towards shedding sheep breeds, especially in the last year.
11: It's taken me 30 years breeding this flock, this stud. So I've I've taken a lot of heat early in the early days um, from Merino breeders. You know what do you want to do this for? So it's been a long hard road, and I've seen in the last five years a different attitude. But in the last twelve months, there's just been quite overwhelming. I think. Uh, All of a sudden, it's extraordinary how everyone makes the same decision at once. But all of a sudden, everyone's wanting shedding sheep. Certainly the younger generation can see the changes taking place within the sheep industry of Australia. It's driven by uh, uh, labour costs, uh, maintenance, work-safe issues in shearing sheds. Most shearing sheds are getting old. Uh, The cost of shearing, the frustration with shearers, floods... It's uh, a whole series of issues and, of course, price.
10: Based on what you've seen in the last year, where do you see the next decade heading?
11: Well, shedding sheep in Australia, they tell us, for about 5% of the U population. I expect in the next 10 years that could be as high as 25%. So there's a massive J, J curve of growth in the industry, um, which is very exciting because in a lot of agricultural things, it's pretty tough
10: how's that compared to where you saw yourself last year
11: well last year we couldn't have dreamt of what we would have achieved this year and so we're dreamers <laughs> so who knows where it all takes us it comes back to the decisions of farmers across australia to you know what they're doing and it depends on the success of shearing sheep uh, and they're not uh, they're not perfect you know we have containment issues they have They have a different mindset. You need to manage them slightly differently. Uh, Some people find that difficult. Other people find that an advantage. So it's, you know, it's not all cut and dried. But we're out there um, uh, trying to solve problems as they come along.
10: What do you think will happen? Say everything does take off in the next 10 years. Where does that leave the wool industry?
11: Well, I think the wool industry is a wonderful industry. And there will always be the passionate wool growers. And in a way, it's very good for the people who stay in the industry because supply and demand is a very blunt industry instrument and the price will go up if there's less of it. So, you know, it's it's not all bad news for the wool industry
2: was Neil Garnett, who is a shedding sheep breeder, speaking with Sophie Johnson. You also heard from John Dalla, who is uh, well known as a merino producer, to uh, be moving into these shedding sheep breeds as well. Interesting to hear how that uh, the industry is moving in lots of different directions. There's certainly a lot more shedding sheep around these days. In the far west of New South Wales, though, in the upper western, it's going to be sunny in the uh, western Man region. Uh, the winds could pick up to about 15 to 20 kilometres Meters an hour tending uh, southeast to southwesterly. Overnight temperatures, though, are falling to between 13 to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are reaching the low to mid 30s. The uh, lower western will see the overnight temperatures falling to between 10 and 14, but the daytime temperatures are going to reach around 30 degrees as well. And farmers are among the people who are most affected by skin cancer. Now, this is National Skin Cancer Action Week and uh, farmers are being reminded that they need to uh, heed the message of Slip, Slop, Slap, but I'll have more on that soon as we approach 1230
1: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: As I was mentioning there, we've got a lot more to come on the Country Hour today. Now, uh, farmers are among the uh, people most affected by uh, skin cancer. But did you know that even on a cloudy day, UV ratings can be very high? On the weekend, when it was uh, only about 19 degrees and raining, there was still a UV rating of 10 in Adelaide. And it's something that people need to pay attention to.
12: In Adelaide it's 11 and in Lee Creek it's 12. So the UV rating varies according to where you are but just because it's cloudy doesn't mean that there's no UV rating and any UV rating three and above you you should be protecting yourself and putting on that sunscreen.
2: Some more on that soon and also an update on the uh, River Murray forecast, uh, what irrigators are doing to prepare for that. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon.
13: Hello Cassie. Well the latest River Murray flood peak forecast for the state has just been released. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says there remains a high probability of 175 gigalitres of water a day flowing into the state in early December. He says the less likely scenario flows reaching 220 gigalitres a day has been reduced to 200 gigalitres. AGL has announced it will be closing its gas-fired Torrens Island B power station near Port Adelaide in three and a half years' time. The company says the facility, which employs 120 people, is losing millions of dollars and AGL is moving towards integrating more renewable energy. AGL's Chief Operating Officer Marcus Brockhoff says the new interconnector with New South Wales, which is currently under construction, also influenced AGL's decision. And 32 new paramedics have started with the ambulance service as the government tries to improve response times and reduce ramping. The extra staff will work out of the Marion Station before 16 move to Edwardstown once a new station is built there. The Health Minister Chris Picton says the inner southern suburbs of Adelaide have been chosen because they need extra coverage. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thanks for that. More news with Matt Coleman at 1 o'clock as well. Now, uh, as uh, I was saying, the state government has updated its outlook for the River Murray. It flows across the border with that peak of 175 gigalitres by early December is unchanged, but this second peak of 180 85 gigalitres is expected around Christmas, and it could possibly reach 220 gigalitres, which is uh, very nerve wracking for the river communities. South Australian irrigators are concerned about how they're going to keep their crops watered when the power is cut to pumps amid the, the flooding. Um, if irrigators are disconnected, the state government does have a $3 million fund to help them out. Someone who is preparing for the higher flows on his property is Drew Martin, an irrigator at Mertho. Good afternoon.
14: Ah, uh, good afternoon.
2: So, how are things looking at your place? What's the current flow rate, and how's it affecting your operations?
14: Uh yeah, I think we're one hundred and twenty-two gigalitres today. Um, we're just below lock six, and um, yeah, it's 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 creeping up every single day now. It's sort of come up even close to ten centimetres just overnight. Um, it's sort of it's it's looking like it. It's going to go over our road in, in the week's time, so we'll lose access to our pump site. And um, we've, we've done everything we can do there, though. We've got a levee bank around the pump house, which is designed for 56, but it's um, cutting it a bit fine. So we've taken extra measures in case uh, the, forecast, the flow forecasts are wrong.
2: So the 56 flood is is into the 300s, but uh, if you're at 122 now to get up to 175 gigalitres even by early December, that's that's still a massive increase.
14: Yeah, it is, and interestingly, like uh, you know, the current forecast will exceed 1974, um, and then when you jump from that up to the 1931 flood, which is an extra 40 or 50 gigs, don't. Um, don't hold me to that, but it's it only came up another 20 centimetres at our site, so it's it's interesting understanding the dynamics of the different areas along the river of how uh, different flows affect different levels. It's not um, our area is not very well mapped um, on the department website, so we're sort of just piecing the information together ourselves.
2: And speaking of, of mapping, I know the uh, state government has said that they don't uh, necessarily know where all the, the pumps are. That's the Energy Department. But by, from your understanding, I mean, you, you often have to have deal with the Department of Energy and Water. So do you think there will be a pretty good understanding of where all these pumps are, which are crucial to irrigating crops?
14: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it'd be very well documented. They probably just have to get on the phone to the Department of Environment and Water. Um uh, where all the works approvals for every single pump station in the state uh, would be recorded and, um, yeah, the exact locations and uh, a lot of information about them would be there. So, yeah, perhaps that department can talk to that department.
2: <laughs> Have you been uh, uh, bought any additional pumps or, or generators?
14: Um, we've, we've bought additional generators and diesel tanks and, yeah, and we, we're looking at, um, if we 're just keeping an eye on the flows now we what we 're really uncertain of um our growers up here um uh, we 're sort of all talking about the darling and we can see what 's coming down on flow tracker out of the murray and and we 've got the forecasts from um from Duna or from Department of Environment Water, which we appreciate but yeah we we sort of the lack of information on what happened at wentworth in fifty six and seventy four is eluding us, and we would Really love for some expert um, information on those on the Wentworth in 74 and 56, and what exactly happened there, and um, and then give us a bit of a forecast on what what's actually going to come through out of the Darling and the timing of it. Um, don't sort of leave it to like a week by week sort of um, scenario. Can someone you know give us a bit of a forecast on what they think of the timing of the Darling? How much is going to actually come out of Wentworth?
2: So when, you, when you're talking about Wentworth there, you're talking about where the Darling River meets with the Murray River. That is upstream of the South Australian border, though. So that you don't believe that that would all be captured in these flows that are predicted to be crossing the border, the 175 gig by early December and then the 185, possibly up to 220 gig by Christmas?
14: Yeah. Um, look, I, obviously it is captured into that. I mean, the department would have done that. But I, I guess we sort of... Um, you know, SA Power Network scared us two weeks ago with a, a last minute sort of um, you know, reminder of what their policy is and that they've done nothing to get rid of for fifty six and it's all the onus is on us. So the trust levels are quite low at the moment and I guess we're speculating a little bit, but if you look at what's coming out of the information coming out of Forbes and Inchuka, those guys have just experienced a flood levels higher than fifty two and fifty six. So what's coming through the dark the Murray now is, you know, I'll say, without someone correcting me, that it's as high as it was in 56. So that's 200 gigalitres that potentially we're going to receive at South Australia. So what if if that rain is sort of across the whole basin and 56 we know at the border was 330 gigalitres, where did the other 100 gigalitres come from?
10: Right. Because
14: we know there's 200 up at Bourke. We know there's a geological barrier of Mindy Lakes and Poon Carey and we're not going to receive 200. But have they... Can they just explain to us their theory behind 185? Just give us a bit more detail of what what they believe will happen at Wentworth and the bottom of the Darling,
2: and what they're factoring in. Because you you read the River Murray reports, but you don't have as much information on what's coming in from the Darling River.
14: Yeah, there's there's not a lot of information. I mean, back in the day, they didn't have the instruments to record the flow, so we've got a lot of level data um, in in his, history, but we don't have a lot of flow data in history, but. There would be people in a the department there that um, you know would have possibly already worked that out, and um, yeah, I mean we we just um, yeah we just require sort of a bit more information, a bit more detail around the decisions, um, what the background to the information they've given us, I suppose. Um, to the, yeah.
2: And we'll be catching up with the Department of Energy, and Environment, sorry, and Water uh, tomorrow. But some good points there to raise with them. By and large, though, this is obviously an extremely nerve-wracking time. I was in Maipalonga last week, where people were very worried there about the river rising. How are people feeling and coping at the moment?
14: Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's um, pe- people are distressed. Like they, you know, they're um, they're doing their best now to get ready um, for for floods i mean you're sort of not really ready until it's on your doorstep if you know what i mean it's you, even though our pump house was designed for 56 when you actually start looking at the realities of that much flow and those levels you discover things that have been done in the last 20 years that sort of go against that blueprint um so you you have to sort of implement different um mitigation strategies that you didn't think you had to do but it's um yeah i guess you've you haven't sort of thought of everything until it's it's time time to, if you know what I mean.
2: Absolutely. And you don't know what you don't know in some cases as well.
14: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, we, you know, a lot of guys have gone and spent extra money on power infrastructure. Um, for some of those growers, it's going to be a good investment that'll pay for itself into the future. For other growers, it's really just an insurance policy that they won't need unless there's a flood. Um, so, you know, that's a big expense there but um yeah so we just we we think we're sort of ready up here like the growers up Murso road we sort of all the guys i talk to we, we think we're sort of ready and um but yeah we we really are questioning the detail around the darling and the information about the darling uh, when that flow and how much flow will hit the murray so any more detail that the experts at the Department of Environment and Water can provide us on. That would be greatly appreciated as soon as possible.
2: Well, I'll see what I can find out. Thank you so much for just bringing us up to date on how you're at least feeling in the the Mertho irrigation area. So thank you so much for joining me.
14: Yeah, great. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good day.
2: That was Murtho Irrigator Drew Martin speaking there. Meanwhile, uh, SA Water is encouraging Riverland and Murraylands residents to register their phone number to receive notifications about disturbances to infrastructure. There's currently no impact on the safety or reliability of local water or wastewater services provided by SA Water, but this may change as these river levels rise. So you can go to sawater.com.au to find out some more details there. It is uh, 19 minutes to one.
13: Hits him straight, down the ground
8: be six. ABC Sports' summer of cricket gets underway. Wednesday, the West Indies take on Australia in a two test series.
1: This is a test match you won't want to miss.
8: Join ABC Sports' coverage of the first test between Australia and West Indies. Live from the WACA in Perth. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital, and live on the ABC Listen app.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Water, but sort of the other end of the spectrum, trying to shore up water supplies in low rainfall times. Many ideas have been put forward to deal with the Air Peninsula's water security issue. There's the possible Port Lincoln desalination plant and there's one proposed for Port Lowly near Wyala as well. But the Elliston Solution Working Group however is campaigning for a more coordinated approach to water security and has concerns about some of the locations that have been proposed. Instead the group is campaigning for a larger scale desalination plant to be built at Elliston which is about 200 kilometres south of Ceduna. So a bit more central to the entire Air Peninsula. And uh, they're also calling for investment into wind energy resources on the West Coast to help run the plant and hopefully help solve the Air Peninsula's water security issues. Spokesperson Tom Chishman explains uh, how the state is in, particularly in that area of the state, is in desperate need of a solution.
7: We need to move away from um, parochial solutions and start looking at the the, uh, the contiguous uh, Air Peninsula. I'm talking about from the Western side of Port Augusta, down to Port Lincoln through to Ceduna and then all the way to the WA border. There's large amounts of um, uh, mining resources. We know that. You know, it's a great farming area and, and things like that. That you know, Ellison's running out of water. Uh, Streaky Bay's running out of water. We know Port Lincoln's looking at uh, water security. And is getting a, a very large hydrogen plant, which is great, but um, they need to look at, you know, where they're going to source that water from. And quite frankly, you know, uh, there's a lead smelter nine kilometres from um, Point Lowly uh, there in the upper Spencer Gulf. Uh, we just think that that's, you know, a, a bonkers idea to um, desalinate nine kilometres away from a um, lead 130-year-old lead smelter, particularly when, you know, the, the uh, shell fishing industry um, next to uh, Port Fury and Port Germain you know, regularly closes due to high lead levels. So on the one hand, we're saying, you know, think broader. I'm talking about the Northern Water Supply Project, um, but we need to look at the Western Water Supply and the Southern Air Peninsula Water Supply and Central Air Peninsula Water Supply, and um, we, we need to all work together uh, for an Air Peninsula solution.
15: And so what infrastructure is needed? I I'm, I'm sort of had a little bit of a look and there was a company called Oscar Energies that had approval for a wind farm, but they found that there was no infrastructure to support actually putting that energy back into the grid. So what needs to be done?
7: They'd be looking for a um, – there's a lot of companies looking around um, at the uh, wind resources in the area – uh, but we need the infrastructure to, to support that, such as the high transmission lines. We, we know that the federal government has announced its 20 billion rewiring the nation fund and, um, you know, we're we'll looking to get a, a, piece of that action. Waila gets its water from Morgan, from, from the Murray via the Morgan to Waila pipeline. Uh, if, if, if things, you know, really pan out, we, Air Peninsula could, um, Divest itself of um, uh, drawing water from from the Murray, and that could actually contribute to the the water minister's um, target of, of finding 450 gigalitres um, uh, to uh, for the uh, Murray Darwin Basin.
15: So, is that where you are at the moment? Is it you? It's just an idea, and you haven't got money yet, uh, but you need uh, well, sort of access. Yeah,
7: yeah, I'm aware that there's investors ready to go. Um, where uh, you know, there's um, landholders that are, that are ready to, to be engaged. Um, there's businesses crying out for money, uh, for, for energy, sorry. And um, we're wanting to kick off um, the discussion to start talking about how can we solve um, water and energy security issues for their peninsula in South Australia.
15: I mean, you're wanting to kick off some discussions, but what do you actually want to come out of those discussions?
7: Well, we'd like to to be declared a um, a uh, project of national significance. Um, we'd like, you know, assistance with all the approvals and regulations and anything like that. Um, we would need to look at doing feasibility studies um, and, you know, the economic case and things like that. The community consultation, all that. So, yeah, we've we've sort of been um, waiting for the. Um, the election's to be, be over and, you know, uh, we, we've seen all the other big projects getting up, such as the, the Mariners Link, and, um, yeah, we're looking to um, start kicking off those negotiations as well.
15: Um, there's a diesel plant that's sort of been earmarked for Port Lincoln and for the lower Southern Air Peninsula. So do you think that there should just be a larger one located somewhere near Elliston?
7: Yeah, Ellison's centrally located. It's about uh, roughly halfway between Port Lincoln and Ceduna. Um, Shriky Bay needs water too. Um, we know the big hydrogen plants going up at Whaler. They'll need water as well. Then there's Olympic Dam. Uh, you, know, you it, Ellison's also about 50 kilometres from the polder pumping station. Now they might need some bigger pipes and bigger pumps and things like that. But, um, if you're going if everyone needs water, you'd want to put it at a centrally located place. Regarding the Port Lincoln uh, desalination plant, it's only going to provide four gigalitres, and, and that's just for that area. Port Lincoln isn't the only, only one that needs water. Uh, as I said, Elliston, uh, Streaky Bay, Sejuna, um, and other places, uh, there's mining developments that are being held back. We know that Wyala needs water for the hydrogen plant. Olympic Dam still needs water. If, we're going to, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right.
15: So how much money would be needed?
7: well there's investors ready to go, but um yeah obviously the um, and, and more information will be released in due course in regards to that and that uh, in terms of the um, uh, the water pipelines and and pumping stations so that just really depends on on how much um sa water and the government actually needs and that but basically you could, there's enough energy and and uh, access at Tankerville, Hill you could um, you could build multiple desalination plants there. You could even look at um, you know, hydrogen plants and, and wind farms and things like that.
15: So what do you want the, the state government to do? Do you see them perhaps they should scrap the um, smaller Port Lincoln plant and just go with a big Air Peninsula plant based at Elliston?
7: I don't see the feasibility of, of one small little desalination plant just to look after one one town, very important town, but um, when there's other areas that need water as well. We just want energy and water security for South Australia and we see all these different p- disparate proposals, one here, one there, little tiny, you know, little foggy uh, diesel plant here. You know, uh, we don't see a consolidated plan for the contiguous Air Peninsula. We, we just see... Um, you know, uh, everyone looking after themselves and sorting out their problems. And we we need to start taking a regional or state approach to this issue. We need to do a um, stock take of all the water requirements for the whole of the region for the next 20 to 40 years and come up with a plan that way.
2: That was Tom Chessman, the campaign manager with the Elliston Working Solution group speaking with Jodie Hamilton. Now, as I was mentioning before, on the weekend, it was cold and wet and overcast. And so you probably wouldn't think you'd have to worry about the sun. But Saturday was actually a UV 10 day or very high. Now, this was news to me. This is not something that I normally look at. I only knew it because I was hanging out with a fair-skinned redheaded friend who was right across the UV levels. But he hadn't said anything. I wouldn't have worried about sunscreen given it was basically raining. So sun damage is a really insidious thing, as we know in this country. And given that it's a National Skin Cancer Action Week, farmers in particular are being reminded that they are one of the industries most at risk. But all of us can heed the message. National Centre for Farmer Health's Agri-Safe clinician and registered no- nurse, mona Simmons, says it's a habit many need to get into. Look,
12: I think there's a bit of variability. Some are quite motivated to be doing the right thing. What they know is the right thing. Most farmers know what they should be doing. But there are quite a few farmers still who probably really haven't set that habit. They, they don't trigger a pattern in their life to, um, do the slip, slop, slap, shade routine, which, you know, they've learnt from childhood. So, I, it is variable. And I think if they had had an experience with someone in their family who's had a, a brush with skin cancer, then their awareness heightens dramatically and quite quickly.
8: Is there also that getting into that habit of going and getting checks as well? Again, I think that's
12: perhaps not routine for a lot of farmers. When I see farmers and look at their overall health with them, We frequently recommend that Um, some are doing it on a regular annual basis, which really they probably should be doing as part of an annual check given that they're outdoors a lot and for extensive periods of time, if they've got a family history, often they're more likely to do that. But yeah, we prompting to do that regular, checking, with, checking in with their GP is really important. But as well as that, with their optometrist is really important as well. Because uh, UV exposure can actually increase the rate of quite a few eye conditions. So um, the, the sunglasses thing is a really good form of PPE to use as well. Um, and even if you are using all the correct PPE and you're doing things well, there's a there's a range of conditions that uh, can develop in your eyes. So. Um, a regular check with your optometry, not just to see how see how well you see, um, but about overall eye health.
8: Do you think these habits then, you know, they might get into a habit of it happening at work, and they're they're getting their sunscreen on and things like that. Are you finding that maybe those habits then don't flow into relaxation and, and you know time at the beach and and uh, you know after harvest when they're uh, heading off on holiday? Yeah,
12: absolutely. And I think um, people just want to get away and have a bit of a break. So perhaps their routines aren't quite as ingrained in those settings and historically that they may not have thought about looking after their skin so much. Most farmers can remember quite vividly childhood burns, but when you think about how they're doing their sun protection on the farm as a routine, if you're in a different environment, it might not carry over. And the other thing to do is model that behaviour for your children because it's a whole family safety issue. You really look after, need to look after your health and the family of, of all of those working on the farm.
8: Uh, quite a few years ago, farmers were sort of seen as the industry that was most at risk of of skin cancers. Do you think that is still the case?
12: My understanding is that's still the okay. case. It used to be that um, they had a 60% higher rate of developing skin cancer. And uh, look, I think that's probably pretty similar. The highest rates are really in Australia and New Zealand. We've got the highest incidence and mortality in the world. And um, your risks of um, getting skin cancer before the age of 75, are, I think it's one in 24 if you're male and one in 34 if you're female. You're five to 10 times more likely to experience uh, radiation than indoor workers. So um, apparently uh, 1,200 die a year, almost totally preventable.
8: Mona, obviously with all this uh, weather that we're seeing right across the country at the moment, sunscreen's mm. probably the last thing that a lot of people are thinking of when it is uh, cold and wet. But why is it important to still be making sure to, to slip, slop, slap and all the, all the rest?
12: Okay, well, uh, in Hamilton today, uh, if you look at the SunSmart app, which is a fantastic tool, it actually, even though it's quite cloudy and it's been drizzly most of the day today, uh, between 10.50 and 2 o'clock, it's recommended that you wear sunscreen. And, in fact, when I first looked this morning, it said between those times, but i am noticed just at the moment that the UV rating is 10. In Adelaide, it's 11, and in Lee Creek, it's 12. So the UV rating varies according to where you are, but just because it's cloudy doesn't mean that there's no UV rating. And any UV rating, three and above, you, you should be protecting yourself and putting on that sunscreen.
2: National Centre for Farmer Health Agri-Safe Clinician and Registered Nurse Mornet Simmons speaking with Brooke Neindorf. Even in a country like the UK, which is known for its overcast weather concerns, uh, were also raised when supermarket Waitrose had a Christmas ad that showed farmers comparing suntans and that raised concerns about sun safety. So we're not the only country focusing on it, but we're certainly one that is obviously very prone to uh, the, the cancer and need to do everything to prevent it. Finally today... Your favourite Australian wines will be kept safe from catastrophic events under a plan to securely store samples from the country's most important grape varieties. I'm sure this is very important to many of you. Megan Hughes has this story.
0: In Queensland's Granite Belt, like a lot of the country, this grape growing season has been a wet one. And as Ballandina State Wines Leanne Puglisi-Gangemi explains, more rain can equal more problems.
8: So disease is always an issue when it's a wet season. So it started off quite wet. So we have Most of the vineyards in the region, well, I should say all of us are in protection mode at the moment. So uh, prevention is better than cure as far as diseases go. So when it's a little bit wet, yes, it it costs us a, a bit more to grow the grapes because we're constantly trying to avert any issues we have with diseases and pests.
0: Growers from Queensland to South Australia are struggling through this season with not only pest and disease pressures, but another year without their major China export market. It's hoped this new national grapevine collection will protect growers from future industry-threatening events. While not under 130 metres of permafrost, this plan is a similar concept to the Doomsday Vault. 25 of Australia's most valuable varieties and their clones kept in a high-security lab. As collection coordinator Nick Dry explains.
16: We're looking to develop a what's called a vine integrity collection. So that's a, a much smaller collection uh, held in slow growth tissue culture. So if you can imagine little grapevines in test tubes inside a lab. Uh, and so that the beauty of that collection is it's it's safe from, you know, catastrophic environmental conditions but also uh, any pests uh, and diseases. So that's going to be Initially, 25 of our most important cultivars. The vine integrity collection will be a, you know, a completely um, a startup collection sitting in slow growth tissue culture uh, in, inside the lab.
0: Does that lab exist? Like, where will it be?
16: Well, at this point in time, there's three or four different options that we're looking at, so we haven't made any absolute decisions on on where that or actually we're going to duplicate those collections. So there'll be actually two labs that we use uh, to, again to spread risk. We're looking to to leverage existing assets.
0: The National Grapevine Collection or NGC project is being funded by Wine Australia with supporting kind from other industry stakeholders. Under the plan, existing collections of grapevine varieties, clones and rootstocks will be coordinated as part of it, with the idea to support them with increased funding to raise the level of security protecting them into the future. Mr Dry again.
16: So the nuclear collections is where we access cuttings to develop new source blocks and those source blocks, as I was saying before, is where we actually collect the cuttings for commercial, um, commercial propagation. We also have germplasm collections which is they're much more diverse so they'll, they'll have you know varieties in there that, that aren't necessarily used commercially that we're just holding uh, I guess for, for the future for future use perhaps or for breeding uh, so they're, yeah, they're genetically diverse they may have a, a range of, of uh, a health status in terms of virus and as I said, they're, they're not something that you, you would go to regularly, but yeah, that's where we keep the, the broader stocks.
0: The wine industry contributes $40 billion to the Australian economy each year, and its national collection is hoped it'll protect its greatest assets. With vines taking five to ten years to produce quality grapes, growers plan for generations, not just seasons. Barossa-based Vigneron and Australian Grape and Wine Board member Adrian Hoffman says, for this reason, it's important to future-proof the industry.
14: I'm a generational grape grower, so I'm not just looking at you know what, what's happening currently on my property and and making you know five-year plans and ten-year plans. I, I'm, a, I'm making sort of twenty-year plans, thirty, fifty-year plans as well, and looking at the next generation.
2: Barossa-based vineyard and Australian Grape and Wine Board member Adrian Hoffman ending that report from Megan Hughes. That's it from me. More coming up at, after at the news at one.